Hey guys, this is Gabby Douglas. If you have an active lifestyle like me, hydration is key. That's why I love the hydration watermelon smoothie from Smoothie King. Blended with whole fruits, coconut water, and more electrolytes than some of the leading sports drinks. Hydration Watermelon is the cleaner way to hydrate with no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. So you can recover and perform at your peak ability during the summer heat. Order online or through the app for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day. Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth with your host, Diane Helbig. Diane is a leading small business development and leadership coach, author, and speaker who is passionate about sharing valuable ideas, tips, and techniques with business professionals worldwide. Diane brings you the world's experts and gurus in all things business, whether it's sales, structure, social media, planning, or plateauing, guests bring their expertise and energy to each episode. When growing your business is your focus, Accelerate Your Business Growth is the show to listen to. Got a topic or guest suggestion? Let Diane know. The goal is to make sure you have the information you need to move your business forward. Thanks for joining us. Settle in and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me. The podcast is sponsored by Audible.com, and uh, they have given me an opportunity to offer you a free trial. If you go to audibletrial.com slash business growth, you can sign up for that trial, and I uh, will gently suggest that you not only check out the audiobooks, but all of the other content that is available there. Over the years, the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast has uh, enjoyed inclusion on lists of the best podcasts to listen to. That continues to happen, and and I am tremendously grateful for that. And it really is because of the guests. Uh, These are people who have expertise in particular areas of business, and they join me for a conversation where they share that expertise with all of you. Today is no different. We actually have a returning guest today, and that is John Warlow. John is the founder of the Value Builder System, a simple software for building the value of a company used by thousands of businesses worldwide. Offered by a global network of independent advisors known as Certified Value Builders, the Value Builder System incorporates several diagnostic tools, including the Value Builder Score. His best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. as one of the best business books of 2011. Thanks so much for joining me again, John. Well, thanks for having me back, Diane. Absolutely. I always enjoy our conversations. And um, I'm, I'm especially interested in this one because you and I are talking in January of 2020 as Everyone in the world has experienced um, the consequences, I will say, of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm curious what selling trends you foresee 
with business owners, like the ones who were hit hard during the pandemic? Well, you're absolutely right. It has been a crushing for a lot of businesses, in particular service companies. We've just done a analysis. You mentioned the value builder score in your intro. We have people, when they start with us, they complete a questionnaire. It's called a value builder questionnaire. And we've analyzed the people who completed that questionnaire prior to the announcement of the pandemic in March 2020 and those that have completed it during the pandemic. And comparing and contrasting the two data sets, there's some really interesting things that pop out. The first is that the desire for business owners to pass their business down to their kids has dropped dramatically. And in its place, the desire for business owners to sell their business to the third party has gone up dramatically. And like, I don't know why that is. You, you and I could like hypothesize. I'm, I'm assuming it's because it's just been such a crushing year for so many that the idea of passing on that albatross to their kids is, is just not appealing. And so they're increasingly looking to sell. The other thing that popped was the, the time frame that business owners have. It's moved forward by 20%, meaning business owners are planning to sell their business 20% sooner and for those that are that filled out the questionnaire during the pandemic. So I look, I think it's had profound impact. Yeah. Wow. So they're just like, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> I'm done. I've had it with this. That's so yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of people right now, uh, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? A lot yeah. of people say, man, if I knew now what I would have known then, I would have sold in 2019. Yeah. And Although the company may be uh, a shell of its former self, I now want to sell because I don't know when the next black swan is going to happen. So look, it's a big, it's a big trend. One of the, the counterbalances to a lot of businesses that may be feeling pinched and, and they're like their profit and losses is, is not as healthy as it was in 2019. The, the offsetting factor of that or the, the counterbalance is the fact that interest rates are so very low right now, virtually free money for anyone who wants to buy a company. That means that the value of a business has gone up in lockstep because most acquirers, whether it's individual investors or private equity groups, they're borrowing the money to buy the business. And so even though some businesses have struggled in 2020, I think it's still a very interesting time to think about bringing your company to market, just given how low interest rates are. Right, right. So situationally, it could actually be a good time. It, it could be. And, and for those who are saying, you know, 2020 was just such a bad year, my profit and loss statement looks terrible. Yeah. I think it's a great, you know, I think it's a great time to really get on your front foot and, and sort of focus on the things we talked about. And the last time I was on your show, this idea of sort of, uh, like building a business that can thrive without you, so that you know two or three down the down the two or three years down the road, it is a sellable, transferable asset. Right. Okay. And so, how does a business owner know when it's the right time to sell their business? I mean, given what's going on or not, just as a matter of course. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to be glib, but the the best time to sell is when someone's buying. In other words, if you get uh, an acquisition offer. Uh, to buy your business, uh, no matter what is going on in the world, I think that's I, I think that's an important sign because when you are being courted, you've got a bit of negotiating leverage. Uh, whereas if you are bringing your business to market and you're proactively trying to sell it to others, you're automatically having to deal with the question like, okay, well, why do you want to sell it? Yeah. Uh, 
you know, one of the guys I interviewed for, for the book and the podcast is a guy named Rand Fishkin. Have you ever had Rand on the show? No. It just reminds like me I of this. this I, yeah, well, you should. He wrote a great book called um, Lost and Founder, where, where he talks a little bit about uh, his experience. He built a company called Moz, SEO Moz, which was like a software that helps you do SEO, search engine optimization. And he built it up to like $5 million of ARR, annual recurring revenue, when he got uh, an acquisition offer for Mark Halligan, the guy who founded HubSpot. And, and the acquisition offer was for $25 million of cash and HubSpot stock. And Rand, you know, he was kind of not ready to sell, didn't real, you know, wasn't really thinking about selling. And someone had told him a long time ago that his business should be worth four times top line revenue. And he was, you know, he was on his road to getting to 10 million in annual revenue. So he threw out the number of 40 million to Mark Halligan. He said, like, I'm not selling for a penny less than 40. Well, Halligan, who already thinks he put a pretty good offer on the table, said, well, like, I, you know, like, I don't, there's not much more we can talk about. And he pulled his offer and, and left. And Fishkin, in, in, in response, decided to grow his business independently, took on venture capital. Well, venture capitalists invest with preferred shares, meaning they get a preferred return. Ultimately, his business started to struggle after he turned Mark Halligan away. It struggled so much so that he actually was removed by the venture capitalist as the CEO. And wow. after I interviewed him on, on, on my podcast, I said, like, what, what would that deal have been worth had you taken the HubSpot deal today? And he said, well, based on the appreciation of HubSpot stock, it'd be worth around $200 million. Oh. And so, oh, I, and I said, I said to Fishkin, what, what, you know, what's your net worth now? And he said, well, because of the way the venture capitalists invested in the company with preferred shares, meaning they get a preferred return before common shareholders, my shareholdings is probably worthless. And I've got 800 grand in the bank, much of which I'm about to spend on elder care for my grandparents. And so it's a story that I recount in the book, but I, I, I share it because, first of all, Rand shared it with me, so I feel like I can, I can tell you. Sure. But also, it's, it's a good response to the question, like, yeah. when's, the best time, when's the best time to sign? When Mark Helgen shows up with $25 million in his pocket, <laughs> it's probably worth listening. <laughs> so it's a good time to sell when, when someone asks uh, if you're interested in selling. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a cautionary tale. Thanks. Oh, I mean, yeah. wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, so what's the biggest mistake you see owners make when it's time to sell? Is it that, that they think their company's worth more than it is or? That's is a, that's a pretty, yeah, that's a pretty common sentiment that, that people tend to, owners tend to inflate the, what they think their company is worth, but it's probably not the biggest mistake. I think, I think perhaps the biggest mistake owners make is answering the question, what do you want for your company? You know, yeah. a lot of acquirers will try to tease that out of you, right? They'll try to, maybe at a quiet moment, maybe when your you know, business broker, or your mergers acquisition you know, professional is not in the room, they'll kind of put your their arm kind of figuratively around you and say like, Hey, you know, like, have you ever thought about what you might, might want for the company or what you'd be willing to accept for the company? And, and answering that question is almost always a mistake. I remember in the book, I interviewed a guy named Chris Jones who, 
was approached by a guy named Ruben who wanted to buy his company, Pepper Jam. And Chris thought he was walking into a meeting with just Ruben in his office. And he goes in and and Ruben's flanked by his chief financial officer, his, his head legal counsel. And Ruben, without even exchanging pleasantries, asks Jones, Chris Jones, he says, so what do you want for Pepper Jam? And Jones wasn't at all you know, expecting that question, right? Yeah. He thought he was going to have a kind of a nice casual conversation. And he sort of stuttered and, and he threw out a number. And Ruben, without even acknowledging the number, turned to his chief counsel and said, okay, I think we can get a deal done, walked away having basically communicated to his deal team, his deputies, that he wasn't to buy their Chris Jones business for a penny less or a penny more than Jones's final number. And so what Jones had done by answering that question, and, and he talked about it when I interviewed him, is I, you know, he said, I put a ceiling on which I will never sell my business for beyond because they're going to make it right. their job to buy it for less. So look, you, you never want to answer that question. I think you just want to say, um, you know, I, I give you some scripting in the book on how to, how to answer it, but yeah. effectively you want to, you want to say you're a reasonable person that you'll accept and, and review, consider seriously any reasonable offer and then let them make the first move. Ah, so you put it back on them. I like That's that. Right. He, who, okay. he who provides us his, he or she who provides the first number almost always loses. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So, so would you explain to the listeners what an earn out is? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's essentially when as a seller, you agree to take some of your money up front and then take part of your money, tie part of your proceeds of selling your company, uh, to a future goal that you will try to hit as a division of the company acquiring your business. And it's often used when you just can't reach uh, a, a, an agreement with a buyer. It's even more frequently used in a service-based business where the business is deeply dependent on the owner or owners. And the acquirer will use it as a way to make sure they lock in the owner. And so an earnout is a, is a pretty typical technique that acquirers use to uh, to minimize their downside of buying your company. Okay, so then my next question is, how does the owner avoid getting into that sort of relationship? Because that doesn't sound like it's in the best interest of the owner. Yeah, you, you, it basically shifts the balance of risk back on the shoulders of the owner yeah. to some extent, depending on what proportion of the deal. You know, if you're a service business, I think you got to accept and, and, and expect that part of your proceeds are likely to be tied to an earn out. Uh, the, the ideal is that you minimize that proportion, right? Because that's at risk. So there's a few things you can do. Um, I talk about in the book, this notion of what you tie your earn out to. The the biggest mistake and what you will probably be proposed to you by an acquirer is tying it to profitability of your business as a division of theirs. That sounds reasonable on the surface. The problem is that oftentimes you're not in control of your profitability after you sell your company. You're now, basically your bookkeeping is being done by the head office. Head office can graft certain expenses onto your P&L. And so you're, you're no longer in control. What I would typically 
recommend is trying to tie an earnout to something else. Um, I just interviewed Rob Walling. Uh, do you know Rob? Have you had him on the show? He's he found no. Drip. Interesting guy. He find he found a, a a business called Drip, and it's an email marketing software. Built it to two million dollars of ARR. Uh, figured it was worth between nine and fourteen times top line revenue. So like a huge exit, huge success, et cetera, et cetera. What was interesting is he had to take some a piece of 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 his deal in an earnout. And they proposed that he do a profit-based earnout, and 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 Walling, to his credit, said, "No, I'm I'm not going to do that." What he did, though, is accepted a portion of his proceeds in an earnout tied to him launching a feature in the product that, that they were keen for him to launch. And being a developer, he knew with a very high degree of confidence that he would be that he would be able to launch that feature. And so he agreed to that or not because he knew he was in control of that, of that fact. Uh, again, that's a, that's a tactic you can use to make sure you tie your earn up to something you feel very confident you can control. Oh boy. I like that a lot that, that it, you want it to be something that you have control over instead of something you lose control over. Exactly. When, you know, once you start, yeah. 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 And I mean, if you think about it enough for a second, like, why does a comp- why does company A buy company B? Well, well, company A likely is trying to integrate your business into theirs, or they wouldn't be buying it, right? Like, why does Microsoft buy LinkedIn? It's because they want to incorporate LinkedIn data into the Microsoft platform. And yeah. so if you think about their motivation is to integrate, it's not necessarily to maximize the profitability of the acquiring company. It's to integrate the acquiring company. And so the moment you accept an earnout, in many cases, you're at odds with your boss, right? Your yeah. boss wants to acquire, in, incorporate and integrate what they bought into their business so they can monetize what they bought. Whereas you want to basically run as an independent unit and maximize your profit at all costs to hit your earnout. And so all of a sudden it's like this oil and water, this like battle with your boss, the person who controls your job as, as, uh, as an employee of the company that just bought you. And so it's a recipe for disaster in many cases. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it. I keep thinking of people I know who have sold their business in, in some sort of fashion like that. And it and and in the moment they think they're getting a great deal and then it just doesn't really pan out that way. Yeah. So again, for a service company, you're likely to have to, you know, put some of your proceeds at risk in an earnout. The the trick is to try to minimize that uh and and to make sure that you can uh, tie your earn out to something you feel like you can control. Right, right, right. Okay, now, now, if someone is selling to a giant like HubSpot, are there ways that they can gain leverage? I mean, other than saying, uh, I- I'm happy to entertain any reasonable offers. To, to put the onus, you know, back on the other company? Are there ways they can gain leverage when they're negotiating? Yeah, leverage comes from multiple offers. I mean, it sounds simple, oh. but if you've ever sold a house, you know, as soon as you've got a multiple offer, you know, you've got a little bit of leverage as a seller. The the, the story that comes to mind from the book is a guy named Peter Kelly, who, who built a business, an auction website for used cars. There's a business for everything, Diane. <laughs> Peter... <laughs> 
Peter went and looked at the world of how you buy, how, how car dealerships, used car dealerships in particular, buy their inventory. And if you know anything about this, it's like this very old school set of uh, auction houses where these cars physically go by on these old conveyor belts at like three miles an hour. And the buyer for the used car dealership has to like write down the specs and decide on the spot whether they want to buy the car. It's like the most antiquated so Peter Kelly comes along and says, I'm going to, I'm going to build a website like autotrader.com exists. So I'm going to build basically an industry auto trader for used car dealerships. Well, he built this company up. And as you might imagine, it's a huge success. He gets acquisition offers from the three big auction houses, which he defers. He does, he, he chooses not to accept them, but there's a little thing kind of in the back of his mind as he grows this business bigger and bigger, he realizes that if the car brands like Ford, BMW, decide to build their own auction houses, they're going to basically disintermediate him, put him out of business almost overnight because a used car, like a BMW dealership is going to buy from a BMW auction site. And so in the back of his mind, he's always worried about this. And so what he decides to do is put his business on the market. But instead of going and, and just selling to one manufacturer or one auction house, he goes to the three and he says, look, all three of you guys have wanted to buy this business. Um, I'm now for sale. And of course, he gets three offers and sells it for like 150 million bucks. It's some huge amount of money. The, the key, though, is that he knew with a high degree of confidence he could get competing offers. And instead of just sort of falling in, be- in bed with one, he's, he, he creates essentially competitive tension. And that's one of the secrets to making sure you've got some leverage against giants. Uh, because there's something called the five to 20 rule, which basically states that the natural acquirer for your business is going to be five to 20 times the size of your company today. And so by definition, you talked about negotiating with a giant. Your, your definition is that you're likely to be negotiating with something, a company that's much larger, much better financed. And so the only one of the ways that you can fight back uh, and get a little bit of leverage over them uh, is multiple offers, as Peter Kelly did so well in his, acquis- his uh, exit. Wow. That, that is, and, I, and thank you for sharing um, the 520 rule because I didn't realize that either, but that, that people need to know that as well. That, that makes a big difference in how you even look at what you're getting yourself into. Uh, I'm gonna take a quick sponsor break and then I have some more questions for you. Accelerate Your Business Growth is uh, happy to be sponsored by audible.com and I'm pretty confident that you know that audible.com has thousands of audiobook titles you can choose from. You may not know about all the other content. There are podcasts, Audible originals, guided meditations. It's almost endless what is is available to you. And the cool thing is that you don't have to switch programs in order to get all that content because it's all in one place. So, and I know that's like my favorite thing about it. Um, So we're offering you a free trial. You can go to audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Sign up for that free trial and then go exploring on your own. Check out the audiobook titles, check out some of the other programming. You'll see how you can really dig down by category, you know, genre, interest, um, and, and really get the, the things that you need. And if you're interested in getting some help with your sales strategy, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon. 
email me your receipt and I'll send you a link for a complimentary one hour strategy call. Today we're speaking with John Warlow about how to build, accelerate, and harvest the value of your company. So we were talking before the break about, um, you know, when you're ready to sell and, and getting multiple offers and whatnot. But when, when someone decides they want to sell, how would you suggest they let potential buyers know that they're interested in selling without looking like they are desperate to <laughs> dump their company? <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of people wonder like, how am I going to, how am I going to you know, get offers? How am I going to drum up, you know, interest in my company? And what I, what I, what I'd like to do is use a, a term that Dan Sullivan uh, from the strategic coach likes to use, which is, finding multiple offers is a who, not a how question. In other words, instead of trying to figure it out yourself, what you probably want to do is, is hire a, an M&A professional or depending on the size of your company, a business broker. Their job is to essentially have a group of buyers that they know that they cultivate and to find other buyers who would be a strategic fit for what you do. Now, that's not my business, Diane. I'm not an M&A professional, so I don't say it in a self-serving manner. But I do think, you know, if you think about selling a house, you, you'd never sell a house. Most people would not sell a house without an agent. And equally, a business is usually a transaction that's, uh, that can be a multiple of that. And so I think you want to have representation and let them do the, the, the hard, heavy lifting of attracting multiple offers. You continue to run your business while they're doing that. So I think it's a who, not a how question. I think that's really valuable. Plus, just like selling a house, there's like an emotional investment that I think um, the, the broker isn't going to have. So they can have conversations on an, on an unemotional level that really speak to the seller's best interest where, you know, it, it's sort of hard to sell something you, it's like selling your kid, you know, yeah. built, right? <laughs> yeah. They can really be that foil and they can, they can switch hats between being the good cop and the bad cop. So they could be the good cop if 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 you know you receive a low ball offer, uh, your inclination might be to fly off the handle and be indignant and say, I, I can't believe you you gave me such a low offer. Whereas the broker is gonna kind of uh, sort of taper temper that reaction and and say, well, you know, Diane was just a, a little bit disappointed, but I think we can get it. She's they're gonna soften your response. Equally, the broker can, if you ask them to play the role of bad cop, meaning they could be the one pounding the fist on the table and make you look like a relatively benign actor in the in the entire <laughs> process. And, and the reason that's important, again, especially in a service company where you're likely to have an earnout, you're you're really negotiating with ultimately the person who will become your boss. And so if you're hurling expletives at each other in the negotiation, <laughs> it's going to be hard to turn around and show up for work on Monday morning and say, hey, boss, how are you? Like, what do you need me to do today? So it's great to have, I think, a foil, someone who can, when they need to play the role of good cop, equally when they need to be your bad cop, they can leave you or insulate you from some of the most difficult negotiation points. So I, I'm a huge believer. Again, it's not what I do for a living, but I'm a huge believer in the value they add. 
Yeah. And so how does someone know whether they need an M&A person or a broker, a business broker? Yeah, it usually comes down to what you think your company is likely worth. M&A professionals typically will have a minimum. Uh, Oftentimes, it's $10 million. Uh, Sometimes it's it's $5 million. But usually it's in that sort of $5 to $10 million of value that they will focus on, the companies of that size, and north of that, of course. Business brokers are generally on the other side of that equation. So usually companies that are less than say $10 million of value and brokers, business brokers can be divided again, subdivided into sort of sort of two flavors. We've got kind of main street business brokers who sell, you know, coffee shops and, and, and donut franchises and so forth. And then you've got what are called kind of quality main street brokers. Those, those sort of, if you will, higher end brokers who focus on companies and usually in that one to 10 million in, in value. So depending on where you think your business is likely to fit on that spectrum, uh, you know, in the lower end sort of Main Street broker to sort of quality Main Street broker all the way up to M&A professional. Those would be the three different sort of uh, groups, if you will. Got it. That's great. Thank you for, for explaining that. Um, so what is a no shop clause? <laughs> and what should an owner do if a buyer wants one? Yeah, this is... Um, it's another reason why multiple offers are so important. So when, when you get an offer to sell your company, uh, it will usually come in the form of a letter of intent or an LOI, which is a relatively formal legal document that an acquirer provides and presents to you. And you've got to essentially sign it for them to proceed to the next stage. Now, in the letter of intent, they're going to say that they want you to sign a no-shop clause, which usually means, which means it's usually in a letter of intent, and a no-shop clause means that you will stop negotiating with any other buyers. And that's almost always in an LOI. It's almost always a requirement of signing one. And you've got to, you've got to kind of plug your nose and sign it. And at that time you lose negotiating leverage. And because as you can imagine, when they know that you've basically gotten engaged and the next step is marriage, they essentially can often use that leverage they have over you to do what's called retrading, which is when they lower the price uh, that they're willing to pay for your business, sometimes legitimately, other times for no other reason of they know they can. Um, and so the secret Again, I talk about some strategies to kind of get around this in the book, but the secret essentially, or one of the secrets is to make sure that the acquirer knows that when you sign the, the no shop clause, you're entertaining other offers uh, because they will be more inclined to hold to the letter of the LOI if they know that you will walk if they, uh, yeah, if they try to retrade. And so again, it, it, I'm getting into some of the mechanics and the negotiation sort of theory that's in the book, but it's, it's effectively uh, uh, important for you to find a way to communicate to the buyer that you're not going to fall victim to the sort of retrading that is so common when people sign a no shop clause. Okay, so I appreciate that. And that sounds to me like you, you would say, you would want them to know that you were in the process of entertaining other offers, but you're willing to suspend that. 
for a period of time. For, for a period of time, got yeah. it, okay. Yeah, I wrote, like I wrote about a, an example that uh, of a guy who did not sign, uh, excuse me, did not do that. He was in a proprietary deal, meaning he was the acquirer knew that they were the only acquirer at the table. He signed uh, a letter of intent, which included a no shop clause. And because the acquirer knew they were only the only game in town, they artificially extended the length of due diligence. And this is something that acquirers do because they know the longer the diligence period lasts, the more worn down you become, the more likely you are susceptible to retrading. In any event, they, they pushed it from 60 days, which was in the LOI, to 90 to 120. And eventually, after four months of diligence, the acquirer and uh, basically walked away from the deal. And it's just a cautionary tale of if the acquirer thinks they're the only bidder at the table, there's no real motivation for them to get the deal done. The opposite is true because they know that after the 60-day due diligence clause in the LOI, on the 61st day, all bets are off and you are welcome to go back to the, the, the other bidders and say the deal fell apart. You know, we want, it, we want to uh, get back in bed with you guys they know that that's what you're going to do after 60 days. So if you can communicate there are other folks at the table from the beginning, they're less likely to slip on the diligence period, which is, which is usually, again, 60 days is in, in most LOIs. Okay. Now, should you tell them that even if you're not entertaining other offers or is that not kosher? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> you've got to be careful. I, I think, um, I think there's a bit of a, and this is why I think selling effectively is a bit of an art as opposed to a science. You see, for most owners, if you simply show up and bluff your way through it and say, you know, I've got 26 other offers and you're, you know, you've got to do better. And most buyers will go, wow, you got 26 offers. Good for you. You should take one of the other 26 and they'll walk. <laughs> and the, the problem is that most you know, most big companies, companies five to 20 times the size of your business are not going to lose sleep if they don't buy your company. It's, they're not going to, their business won't be irre, irreversibly, you know, damaged if they're not going to buy your company. So you can overplay your hand by kind of puffing out your chest and faking that you've got dozens of other offers when you actually don't. However, there's a way to subtly thread the needle by saying to an acquirer, look, we, we've got a few other things we're considering. We've got a couple of other strategic alternatives that we're considering, including your fantastic offer. And so what we want to make sure is we really understand your offer well, as well as these, you know, one or two other things that we're considering. And so it's, it's a slightly more nuanced sure. message that says there's, there's other folks at the table, but we really value you and our partnership with you. So it's, it's, again, it's, a, it's, um, I don't mean to mince words or sound like Bill Clinton. It, it's a, <laughs> it, 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 there's a needle that needs to be thread that is, is delicate. Uh, but I think it's important to try to find a way. And here's the thing, you know, what, one of the things we don't think about a lot is that every day we decide to wake up and own our business without selling it. Effectively, we're essentially we there's an offer on the table that we are saying no we want to own our company so we are buying our business every day we kind of wake up in the morning and continue to own it so in a way you're there's a standing offer for your business it actually is from you where you're the one who has chosen to keep it and so i think it's fair for you to say look to an acquirer look i've got another offer that i'm 
that I'm seriously considering. And that other offer could be from you and your spouse for continuing to run your company. And I think you can legitimately say that with a straight face that, you know, you've got at least one other option. It's, it's called, and I'm sure you've heard this acronym before, a BATNA, Best Alternative to a Negotiated Agreement. Essentially, it's basically, what's your plan B? And I think everybody has a plan B and, and you need to find a way to subtly communicate in an authentic way, uh, not a threatening way, but you do have an alternative and that, that it's, it's a serious, legitimate alternative uh, that you're considering exploring. I love that. That is so great because it's true, and it it it's so you can still be in integrity. I think that is great. So, uh, should well, how do I want to ask this question? If a potential buyer wants um, wants to talk to your employees and your customers as part of their due diligence, how do you handle that? Like, Yeah, that's a, that's a real, uh, that's a real strategy. We talk, you know, there's a few strategies uh, that, that, that we talk about in the book. There's one that, uh, that I'll point to, and that is something called stage diligence. And effectively, again, I talk about diligence a lot, but basically you've got a letter of intent and there's 60 days of diligence and diligence where they validate what you said leading up to the sale is in fact true. And then there's an exchange of funds at the share purchase agreement. So that's the sort of culmination of a sale. So it's this, during this diligence phase where they may ask to talk to your employees, to your customers. And, and again, there's lots of different ways that you can either minimize the number of employees or customers they talk to or eliminate it in completely one strategy is something called staged diligence, where effectively you stage it or have a set of gates. So the least uh, disruptive information, in other words, the least disruptive steps are at the beginning of the diligence phase. Uh, you know, they want to vet your your lease on your premises, for example, and they want to, you know, your access to your profit and loss statement from last year. I mean, those are easy things for you to fulfill and they don't require any risk or, or disruption. So you can do that at gate one and, and then make, you know, the, the talking to your customers, for example, or a handful of your customers, the final steps, a little bit like when you go for a job and they say, look, I want to talk to references. And you say, well, like, I'm happy to have you talk to references after I see the offer. And, and similarly, you want to put the talking to the customers and talking to their employees at the very last step of the diligence. And the reason that's important is that the acquirer is going to be investing time and money in the deal. They're going to be investing legal fees, hours, hundreds of hours of analyst time. And so they're not going to want to do that uh, unless they're really serious about buying your company. I talk in, in the book about yeah. one private equity company who used the veil of an acquisition, meaning they pretended to want to buy a business. And the only reason they did that was to get access to the executive of that company, basically to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with the executives. And what they were trying to do was actually recruit those executives. And so they, they did 80 different they made 80 different acquisition offers. They consummated, I think, on two deals. And on the other 78 companies, they went in and tried to recruit the people they met through the diligence phase. Wow. And so 
you've got, yeah, you've got to be really careful that the acquirer that you're dealing with has a genuine interest in buying your company because a letter of intent is, is non-binding unless there's a breakup fee, which is very rare in small and mid-sized businesses, it's non-binding. So they can walk away at any time. And some unscrupulous actors will literally use the veil of an acquisition, uh, pretend to want to buy your company just so they can talk to your employees. And so again, you don't want that to happen. Uh, they also, in some cases, use the veil of an acquisition to learn about your secrets, right? Your operating secrets. Um, and, and so- yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty slimy. You don't want to, you don't want to go in and, you know, like I, I, I use the, uh, the analogy of Sully, the, the guy who, remember the guy who landed the, uh, yeah. on the Hudson, like he had one shot at getting that right. There was no do over. There was no, go around. <laughs> he had to grease it. Right. Yeah. And a lot of ways when you're selling your company, it's your life's work and you've got one shot to nail it. And there are all these little, nuances and little tips and tricks and gotchas and speed bumps and potholes that you just need to know about in order to make sure you don't get taken advantage of. And so it, that's what I'm trying to do with the book is to kind of point out some of the, the classic things that, uh, uh, that acquirers do to, to put you in a vulnerable position. Yeah, boy, it's so valuable. And I really appreciate you sharing this information, John, and coming back on the podcast because People really, you know, they, they need to understand what they need to watch out for, what they need to set up, you know, just, just all of these things. It's so valuable. So thank you so much for um, doing this. And will you let the listeners know how they can find you and how they can get the book? Yeah, sure thing. So if they go to builttosell.com, they'll, you can opt in and there's a bunch of different places to opt in. And, uh, when you do that, you'll get a different episode of the podcast each week where I interview a different entrepreneur who has recently sold their company and that's free. It doesn't cost anything, but it'll give you a sense of some of the stories. And then if you go to built to sell.com slash selling, we put together a unique set of gifts for people who order the book from that page, including a, a seven part, uh, event series, uh, virtual event series with seven of the entrepreneurs featured in the book. So again, that's, uh, that's all at builttosell.com slash selling. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you. And listeners, thank you. You are who we are doing this for. And, uh, you know, this was pretty valuable stuff. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Go to audibletrial.com slash business growth, sign up for that free trial of audible.com and go exploring. It will be fun. You will find some incredible content and I think you will enjoy yourself. And get your sales strategy headed in the right direction with Succeed Without Selling, available on amazon.com and wherever books are sold. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. 
I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.